Hey, I'm Jen Loud, and welcome back to Create Out Loud. What a conversation I have for you today. We are going to have some real honesty. We're going to talk about arrogance. We're going to talk about taking our writing or our art seriously with Heather Haverlowski. And hopefully, Heather, I just said your name fairly correctly. You probably know Heather from Ask Polly, her very famous and beloved sort of advice column, or maybe Polly's evil twin sister asked Molly, or maybe her new fantastic memoir, Foreverland, or her other books, including a beautiful book of essays, What If This Were Enough? I was scared to interview Heather, and I'm going to let you hear about why I was scared and how much we connected. Let's just dive in. This is such an amazing episode. I'm so stoked to share it with you. Heather, did you have a feeling when you released Foreverland and you gave the excerpt to the New York Times? Did you wonder how it was going to be misrepresented? Did you wonder how it was going to land? I'm going to interrupt before Heather even gets a chance to talk and just say there's been a lot of brouhaha about how the book has been reviewed in the New York Times. The View, which is a U.S. talk show, talked about the book in horrible scathing terms dig this without even having read it. They admitted they were just reading some excerpts that a publicist gave them and without ever mentioning Heather's name. And the reason why I bring this up right at the beginning of the interview is because a lot of what we're going to talk about is honesty and bravery and courage. And you could really go online and, and learn a lot by how Heather has handled this. Everybody gets bad reviews on their books, or most people do. That's not the issue. The issue is the misogyny even from the female talent, I guess we call them, on The View. And that's what pisses me off. The thing that I've admired about your writing for however long I've been reading you is you're so able to say the things that I'm afraid to say. Mm. You're able, you're you're (laughs) right. (laughs) And I say that not just for me personally, but I know a lot of people listening, that stops them from working. They're doing their work. They're afraid. They're afraid to even say it to themselves, to put it on the page or the canvas or whatever. And I wrote a national magazine column. They turned it into an advice column. And I eventually got fired from doing it because I was so bad at it. Then I discovered your advice column. And I'm like, how the f- did she do it so well? And I say this with like at great admiration, but there's that truth in the column too, or the columns and the different places. That you may not know how you do this, but I'm very curious if you do. Well, let's see, where do I start, Jennifer? I mean, <laughs> I was just 11. So much- <laughs> <laughs> there's so much magic to explore here. As far as the New York Times excerpt, I was surprised that they wanted that chapter actually kind of had my mind wrapped around the more general chapters about marriage or earlier in the marriage when we're falling in love or maybe the wedding chapter. I was really surprised, but I really liked the editor. And I thought I sort of trusted the editor. And I thought like, if if this is what she wants, then let's run with it. I did think about how out of the context Context of the book, I'm very careful and clear about my what my relationship is made of. And by the time you get to the anger chapter, you understand that we, we have a lot in common and generally get a long and and love each other like crazy, my husband and I. But I don't know, it was sort of one of those things where you say, well, it's an excerpt, it's New York Times, we'll just see how it goes. I did send it to one friend who is a very, very honest critic of my work. She often says, I don't read stuff like this. She's been known to say things like, I did not laugh. I sent that chapter to her and she said, I laughed so many times I, I lost track, which is not typical feedback from her at 
at all. So I kind of trusted that it would be okay. I don't generally worry that much about how things land. I've been doing this since I was 26. I've been writing for online magazines and I'm 51 now. And the first magazine I wrote for was called suck.com. The tone was pretty snarky. I have like a long history of writing obnoxious things and aggressively negative things sometimes. If anyone can sort of weather this storm, I can. Mm -hmm. The reaction surprised me. When it comes to marriage, people don't have the most even-handed attitude. I mean, a lot of people misread the piece as being pro-hatred, pro-divorce. I had one afternoon where I felt like I was like the 50th really tweet that said, I hope your husband dumps you and call your lawyer. And I just sort of felt like, hmm, I sort of went to bed that night feeling like, what did I do? This whole book is so personal. And, you know, my husband is sort of like, he just laughs at it. Okay. So if you're talking about creatively, if you're talking about how do you leap in and write these things that you're afraid to admit to yourself. I mean, sometimes the beauty of writing is that you learn how you feel on the page and it's so exciting. There are times when you say the bold thing, it captures more than when you're trying to say the safe thing. And you actually learn and move somewhere. So kind of like, I mean, why do we write except partially we write because we're trying to accept what we're made of. I spent four years writing a memoir that ended up dying and not becoming a book. I didn't have any regrets. I mean, okay, maybe a day or two, but because I changed, because I really did honestly change so much. I became a different person from wrestling with that level of honesty and trying to make it make sense to someone else, right? Not just in my journal. Because you can't hide. If you're hiding yourself, it's not going to be a good book. And the ways that we sort of try to build pretty structures around our ugly things take some distance, but you can look at something you constructed and say, look at all this work I did to seem more lovable than I am. I need to get rid of all this because readers can see through everything. They can see through what you're trying to trick them into believing about you. And eventually you just have to surrender. Has writing about, especially this book, Foreverland, has it helped you to, this is going to sound really mushy, but love yourself more? Yes. I think it helped me to love myself more and it helped me to love my husband more too, Mm -hmm. because taking the time to kind of come through your history with someone, I was looking for ugly things and funny things mostly because I didn't want to write a book about marriage that was um, triumphant and that made us look better than we really are. I really wanted to, if anything, err in the opposite direction and, and make us seem much more awful than we were in certain ways, because that's sort of what's funny, but it's also sort of the texture, the felt texture of the felt experience of being in a marriage is feeling mm-hmm. like you're constantly disappointing yourself and failing. You're falling short of your grandiose, shiny vision of what you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be as a couple and as an individual. But I think there was a way that after I wrote my first draft, which was just like, we were both monsters. My editor was like, I need to understand more about how you feel about Bill, which is funny because I thought that was all over the smeared all over the place in the grossest way. And I went back in and I, <laughs> and I said, holy God, I had to slow down and go back to scenes and think about what I appreciate. There were scenes that were actually about coming to such a grateful place. These scenes were waiting for the moral or waiting for the message and, and the message wasn't there. 
What Heather is saying is so important. A lot of us have learned who are writers or who have to create content to write really fast, to keep our hand moving. That can be really, really useful. I'm all for it, but it's just a first draft. And I call it deepening and thickening. And we really need to go back in and add our emotional reaction or the reaction of the stories that we're telling or, you know, the case studies that we're using. The biggest comment I make on writer's work is dig deeper or where were you? Or I have no idea what you're thinking or feeling here. We leave out things that the reader really needs that feel really obvious to us. And we got to slow down and go back and lay those layers in. And that's true for all kinds of content. So if you're not, you know, writing memoir or fiction or whatever, but you're writing blog posts, you're writing artist statements, you're writing copy for selling your products on Etsy, make another pass, make a third pass, slow it down. And then of course, get someone else to read it. It was an amazing process. I finished writing the book during the pandemic, trapped in a house with my husband. I mean, it was like a crazy, stupid thing to take on, essentially, if I'd known (laughs) that that we would be trapped in the same house together. But by the same token, it was great. Sort of had a reason to have this ongoing conversation about where Mm. our relationship was and what had been happening to us and where we were. We definitely grew a lot closer in that process. I mean, we were doing fine, I thought, from the beginning. And then I started to question question marriage, question everything in the middle of writing the book. And then by Mm -hmm. the end of it, I felt like, oh, this is just what I do. I like questioning things. (laughs) That happens in Ask Polly. And now her dark sister twin, Ask Molly. (laughs) I actually had to like Google, like, is Heather writing both columns? I'm like, I felt so stupid. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if I make that clear enough. You do. I was just like, I wanted to be factual before I ask you any questions. And I'm like, "Uh -uh, I'm I'm doubting myself here. (laughs) How could this be the same person? No, not at all. No, not at all. They don't. Because what I experienced with all of your writing, it made me a little afraid to ask you to come on the podcast because I'm so mushy. I'm embarrassed by my mushiness. I'm trying not to be. I'm a little older than you are. I'm a lot older than you are. I'm 59. And I'm like, this is who you are. You're a mushy person. It's not going to change. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I read you and I read the mushiness, but it's, it's so cleverly not covered, but constructed with this brilliance and this humor. So the mushy is there and the truth is there, whether it's in Ask Polly or in Foreverland or in your other books. And it connects with my heart, like the end of your foreverland, I sobbed. Oh, I mean, in a good way. I was married to my first husband for 18 years and I've now been with my second husband for almost 14. So I get it. Get it. You're a marriage uh, expert. Is that a style that you developed on purpose? Is it the mushy has come out as you've, and mushy is a terrible word. Like, uh, no, that's I, okay. I think that I've always been at war with myself in the same way that you described. And mushy is a word that it makes sense because it conjures how you feel about your own soft emotions. You know, you worry that it's just too squishy and it's going to give way and that it's kind of unattractive or inconvenient. Um, Or too much for people. And it is. I mean, the thing is, (laughs) it really is too much for people. As long as it's too much for you, it's going to be too much for everyone else because the way you carry it around isn't quite right. It's something that you're pulling out of your bag at an awkward moment. (laughs) And people, what's this? Right, or because you're not at peace with it. That's the thing that I am learning always. When you're at peace with whatever your ness is, 
then whether other people are uncomfortable with it or not, you're like, oh, okay. When you're comfortable with the whole picture, and this is something I write about and ask Polly all the time. It doesn't mean that you're not never uncomfortable with it, but if you're mostly comfortable with a lot of different aspects of your personality to the extent that you just naturally don't hide them that much, the way you present yourself on the page and in person becomes much more like a disgraceful dance instead of confused, (laughs) frantic search through a bag for something that you have to share, but it's the wrong moment, but you need to show it to someone. I think I wrote more like that in the old days had a lot of bluster and then I'd be but wait wait you know and it was like and then she changed to the softness and sweetness and almost a little bit too sentimental first drafts are full of all kinds of madness I do find that my work flows the same way that my personality flows and the more self-acceptance that's in the mix the better the prose is and the the richer the picture that I can paint can reach for more I mean I'm not afraid to make jokes I'm not afraid to exaggerate that people about anger was mm-hmm. all about. When I wrote, do I hate my husband? The answer had to be yes. I was imagining the audience or the readers wondering if I hate my husband based on all the things I had described. And the only right answer was yes, for sure. Definitely. Not because I literally hate my husband, but because that's the joke. You know, mm-hmm. The joke is that you're expecting me to say, no, I don't hate him. The piece works in part because it works against our expectations that a person will defend their feelings for their spouse and defend their marriage above everything around them, which that's a perfectly legitimate stance. It's just not one that is very interesting anymore because we see it everywhere. Can I go back to self-acceptance for a second? If possible, take us into a moment of that in a first draft when you notice that you're not being self-accepting of what's coming out on the page. There are lots of examples of it in writing Foreverland. When I first wrote the crushed chapter, I mean, that one comes to mind because I had to rewrite it a lot of times. It's not typical of the book in many ways because it's Uh really just a narrative. It's just a first person story, essentially, that you could tell over a drink to someone else, which I needless to say have told to many people because it's a very funny story. When I first started writing it, and this is kind of goes to what you were talking about with your listeners worrying about about how to get their honest selves on the page. I was trying to protect myself from how I felt in that situation. I developed a crush randomly and I didn't really want to. It just sort of invaded my head, my body. I really didn't like it. It made me mad at myself. Mm -hmm. I was humiliated by it, but I told my husband about it immediately. I mean, as it turns out, I can't lie to him about anything, which was really kind of unfortunate because it made the possibilities of the situation pretty narrow. But I mean, that's a joke, obviously. But I think when I first started writing that chapter, I just knew I had to include it. It sort of happened right after I sold the book. So it was just this strange thing where I was like, there's no way this can be kept out of the book. It's too weird. It's really interesting you say that because the book structure really works, but it's a very different structure. It's not a traditional narrative arc of a memoir. I guess and sometimes the point of view changes in different chapters. You try different devices. And yet it does have escalating action and that crush. And then I won't talk about, I don't want to ruin it for everybody. Other stuff happens, makes us 
get this sense of urgency. And yet it also has a little bit of feeling of essays. When I sold the book, it was essays. I'm an essayist. I love essays. And that's the form I feel most comfortable writing. The book is really not essays anymore. No, it's really not. a linear narrative. And especially at the end, because these things were happening as I was writing them, essentially, it just had to be more immediate at the end. And, there, and these things happened that I had to include. They couldn't take over the whole book, but they had to be there. They just belonged in the book Mm -hmm. in some form. As far as the structure of each chapter goes, there is a shift between chapters. There's a kind of tonal shift. Some chapters are funnier than others. Mm -hmm. Some are more serious than others. There are funny bits in the sad and serious parts, and there are serious parts to this funny stuff too. My main thing was just that I wanted the book to feel exciting. I wanted there to be momentum. I wanted you to feel like you were being carried forward Mm -hmm. to the next chapter and the next chapter, and you never felt like, whatever, I can put this down now. I wanted there to be a real emotional theme. I remember talking to my husband about this. I wanted there to be a theme and a mood, and I wanted there to be movement in each chapter. I think that I pulled that off. It took a long time. I sold this book in the spring of 2019. I mean, half of it was sort of partially written. The pandemic slowed things down. My editor took a long time with it, but it actually ended up helping it a lot Mm -hmm. because I was able to make the book into a whole thing that felt like an experience. Was that a big stretch for you, given that everything else has been more discrete essays? It was. Did did you do any kind of studying or did you look at how other people linked essays more? I'm not a really good studier anymore, but I also have been writing for so long that I sort of felt like Mm. I just needed for the endings of chapters to have Some of them needed to feel wrapped up and others needed to link to the next chapter and keep you in it. I looked a lot at the beginnings and the endings and Mm -hmm. tweaked those a lot as I went along. I really did a lot of retrofitting also the introduction retrofit to the mood of the book. At one point, it was kind of a cheerful, loving, sentimental introduction, I guess, mm-hmm. I guess the beginning when I was starting to write. And that's almost why the first few chapters were very dark, because I was sort of like, oh, this intro is so... I can't write a whole book like this. Mm-hmm. And then I went back and wrote this really dark introduction. You know, It was like the darkest days of the pandemic. I wrote this introduction that was just like, death, death, marriage. <laughs> I mean, and I kind of kept the beginning of it. Mar- Marriage is not a success until one of you dies. It's just like kind of an off-putting sentiment to begin the book with. Everything got rethought and reshuffled. When you're trying to make something dramatic and exciting and colorful, you stuff it full of details and emotions and words. And I'm very wordy. And I went in and cut mercilessly throughout the book as I was editing it. Merciless, merciless assassination of giant (laughs) paragraphs of words, which I think really worked out well. It's the kind of thing that when you pick up a book that you wrote five years ago, you want to do. I don't need this paragraph. I wish I had noticed that I didn't need it. It's more about wanting to cut things than it is about polishing things even. You just want things gone where you're like, get to the point because that's what I like to read. And we write for ourselves in a way, you know, we, we have to write at least for our taste. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, more and more. And unfortunately, I find myself becoming more and more kind of eccentric and strange 
in my writing because my taste is getting weirder. Someone after the New York Times thing said, you know, you really should have read the room because it's, you know, we're still in a pandemic and people don't want to hear about your anger at your husband. And I was like, read the fucking room. Fuck <laughs> that shit. I don't want to read the room. That's you like telling what? me to settle down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, calm down, please. Be a um, lady. Yeah. You know, are we here to read the room or are we here to fucking write something exciting to us? Yeah. Mm. (laughs) So your writing career has had a lot of twists and turns. You have changed with technology, with outlets. What's that been like? How have you adapted so well? And you've moved from, you know, poly, you've moved poly to to Substack Mm -hmm. exclusively. Is that correct? Yeah. It's only on Substack now. I would say some of my transitions were more ragged and awful (laughs) than others. Writing my first book, I mean, I was about 38 when I started writing it. And I think I was, maybe I was 38 when I sold it to Riverhead or 39. And then I finished it when I was 40. That was a big breakthrough. I mean, I'd mostly just been writing for online magazines up until then. Starting to take my writing more seriously just in the past two years has felt like a breakthrough too. Can you say more about that? And I think this is something that a lot of women do who are creative. I've always been sort of careful about not getting too grandiose or vain or arrogant about my writing. I mean, you can be privately very proud of your work and still sort of talk like, who me? I am just, I just do my little (laughs) thing. Don't pay any attention to this. I mean, which is just like, the opposite of really where you should sit with your work probably, but there's a way that just taught to not take up a lot of space and not show off. And it sort of feels show offy enough to be a writer in the first place. You feel like you're shoving your thoughts and feelings in people's faces so much as it is. I mean, partially as a result of writing stuff that was softer through Ask Polly. I mean, Ask Polly was originally conceived as like a tough love column. It was just like, you're stupid, shut up. I was just supposed to be funny. But then I found that I was pretty good at writing the softer stuff, that I wasn't embarrassed by it as long as I liked the big picture of the column. If it was funny, if I felt like I made some good points about this or that or analyzed something well, then I was allowed to move into this space of love yourself, take care of yourself. Mushy. Believe in yourself. Yeah, the mushy (laughs) stuff. Probably something that always brings so much joy to my life. At some level, it's effortless and enjoyable and delightful. But if I just tread water, it can become too rote. So I have to bring the full force of my personality to it, or it gets boring to me and probably to other people too. And also just being in that wellness space, right? Mm-hmm. Or being in that kind of helper space can sometimes bring out the dark side. Oh my God. Yes. That's why I love that you started as Molly. I thought genius. If I had thought about that when I was writing my different self-help books, et cetera, God, maybe it really would have helped because I am mushy, but I'm not mushy. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people who know me in my regular life and don't know me as a professional helper, if they come upon my helping work, so to speak, they're like, what the hell? Yeah. That is not who I know in the yeah. neighborhood. Some people believe when they meet me that I'm going to be more sort of scary and evil than... I really am. And, you know, I'm a pretty regular, lovable type of, I mean, not, I don't want to say lovable, actually, that's not accurate, but I'm a friendly, nice person, you know, at least on the surface. I'm, you know, I'm pretty normal. 
But then there are other people who, that I will be uh, just a earth mother who showers them with love. And I'm not quite that either. What's funny is I think that the trap that we fall into is we imagine that readers and listeners and audiences don't understand who the fuck we are when they know better than we do sometimes. I mean, we just bring what we have. We sometimes think that we're serving this for this audience and that for that audience. When in fact, a lot of the people who read Ask Polly also appreciate Ask Molly, or at least would even invite more darkness into Ask Polly if they could. But there's already darkness there too. The more I write, the more I feel like actually all of these things are perfectly acceptable together and can be blended together. You don't have to make a special suburb for your <laughs> for your dark writing. But by the same token, it really helped me to have a place to put nastiness, especially at a time when social media can be a very conforming and scoldy influence in your life as a writer. Mm -hmm. It's helpful to sort of say, hey, if you don't like it here, that's because someone evil is writing it and you know, you can go other places. It's fine. This is a theme that comes up in a lot of these interviews. Sue Monk Kidd talked about the need to follow your soul. Pam Slim recently talked about how she could have stayed with one theme for her business and her writing and her content, but she had to keep growing. And that had an economic impact, but that was okay with her. I think we have been raised perhaps in a culture that tells us that we have to stick with one thing. And sure, I know that sticking with certain courses and retreats that I've offered over and over again have helped me build a successful business and make more money, but we have to keep checking in at what cost. And if we do feel like we're willing to pay the cost because, yes, I need to keep making this amount of money or this is easier, we got to make sure there's other places like Lisa Cogden talked about where we are playing and learning and growing, maybe outside of the public eye. We've got to balance our need to learn and grow with our need to develop our craft and make a living. It's easy to take your own writing, to not take it seriously enough. You decide that you're serving something for a certain audience. You forget about the other things that you have written. I've written cartoons. I've written essays. I've written cultural stuff. I was at a place after What If This Were Enough where, I mean, What If This Were Enough was kind of a book that was written in order for me to take my writing more seriously. Oh, okay. But I didn't quite get there until it was done. And then I went back to writing Polly. I had been writing Polly all along. And then it was like I needed a push to take my writing seriously enough that I could experiment and not be embarrassed, right? I mean, that's what Molly really was. It was just a big experiment. I had to slough off tons of shame to engage in this experiment. I mean, at times pretty laughable and pretty humiliating. I mean, it's not, not every Ask Molly is uh, pure brilliance. Mm -hmm. I'm learning as I go. You can see the trajectory of it if you start from the beginning. It's utterly experimental. I just wanted to make sure it wasn't boring. I mean, I'm sure there are boring parts of it. Everything you do as a writer is kind of a high wire act. At that point in my career, I needed to do something that risky in order to break down some walls to teach myself that I would be okay with writing stuff that was a little bit more melodramatic. If you're bored, the writing is boring. Yeah. Yeah. What are we here for? Again, we're here to enjoy the process of writing more than anything else. You have to please yourself along the way. And when you please yourself, it's so good. You know, like, <laughs> it's 
so good. <laughs> I wish you all could see the look on Heather's face when she did that. It was like she was eating something really delicious. <laughs> Have you ever had any qualms about writing as Polly in terms of actually giving people advice? I think that ideally I would just stop telling people things at all. At times I think about just announcing, I'm not giving any more advice. I'm just going to tell you what thoughts have come to mind around this. And sometimes my answers really amount to, I'm just thinking about your problem. Mm -hmm. Take one piece of it and start running in a certain direction. I mean, those are the good ones because they have energy behind them. The less good ones, I mean, I think I had a rut for a while where I was just like, okay, here's what you do. You know, like, <laughs> like visiting the mechanic, but it's not really what the column is. The column is supposed to feel like an, a just fun, crazy journey. The person who wrote the letter and with me and with um, kind of all the readers in the mix. The thing about Substack is because I'm in control of the comment section, I mean, whatever, I've never had to do anything to the comment section. It's intimate. It's not just people wandering by on the internet and saying, fuck you, lady. You're ugly. The same people are back all the time and you talk to each other and Ask Polly readers are smart and they're funny and they're complicated in a lot of the ways that I'm complicated and it's like a little group therapy. It's, it kind of sounds like bullshit because a lot of people are cultivating similar communities in similar places. And all I know is my experience of it is good. And Polly can kind of be whatever I want now. It's That's like, so true. That I've watched you sort of evolve through that. I mean, I look at the older ass Polly's and the one that I think maybe it was when I first encountered your work, should I give up on my writing? Which of course I read because this is something over 30 years of writing professionally that I've been like, hell yes, <laughs> please give up <laughs> on the writing, Jen. Please go learn how to do something else. And I've watched that, you know, how you have evolved. And actually just to go to back to Ask Molly for a second, you wrote an Ask Molly recently about really about women's desire and how we damp down on it. Like you wrote, this is what so many years of daring have done to you. They've turned you into a choosy beggar, thankful for scraps, but unable to ingest them without gagging. I just found that piece really moving because I've been obsessed for decades with how women want and how we stop ourselves from wanting. And of course, how the culture constantly stops us from wanting. Yeah. Nicely put. I mean, no one wants us to be as ravenous as we are. Well, that is a well moment for me. That's the takeaway. That's the shining light. Did, did that hit you really hard? Wow, it's like right in my solar plexus. <laughs> Allowing ourselves to be ravenous, not expecting the culture to say, hey, yeah, go for it. Supporting ourselves and finding the support to be ravenous in our creative desires. I mean, I feel like that's the essential, the essential mission for me in life. But but remembering to do it for myself too. Like I bet you're great at helping other women be ravenous for themselves <laughs> or you know, however you identify he, she, or they. But are you as good at letting yourself be as ravenous? Wow. So often what we encounter is the message that we should stop making unpredictable ravenous sounds and be per small, predictable, supportive people who just make life good for the people around them. Like we're just appliances that aren't working when we make bad sounds. I strongly object to that to the extent that I'm willing to throw myself on that fire and be the example. I mean, unfortunately, they're sort of like, well, I'm going to sound that way. And then you become the example of what happens to someone who sounds that way because people attack you. I'm 
fairly comfortable with that, actually. It's not super awesome that that's where the culture is. But you know, women are, I mean, not to be utterly gender essentialist, but women are, uh, and a lot of other people are trillion times more imaginative and flexible and full of rich colors and sounds and emotions, then this world is willing to acknowledge or even see or even look in the direction of to be able to sort of model the madness inside a woman is an incredible gift. And it's so fun. And I never get tired of that. And I find that as I get older, I want more and more and more, and I feel more and more free. I never really bought it when Women my age now talked about that when I was younger. I was like, whatever, you don't feel free. You're 51. You don't feel (laughs) that good. (laughs) Just admit that you feel like shit. Having freedom, God, for once in your life and just saying what you mean without feeling embarrassed by it. It's great. When other people are baffled by it, it doesn't feel that bad. It sort mm-hmm. of just fits with what you know already. When you see it enough times, when you're disappointed by it over and over again, there's a point where you just say, oh yeah, like people hate this. <laughs> people hate an angry woman. People hate a woman who has really strong desires. People hate a woman who takes up space. And Great way though, to go back to the beginning of our conversation. How do you write about the things that you do in Foreverland, in Ask Polly and Ask Molly, in the other books? If we can write for them or create or paint or dance or whatever you're doing, y'all that are listening, if we can do it from that place of, well, of course there's going to be people who don't get it because they don't get a free woman who's expressing herself. So why should we expect anything different? And why should we shut ourselves up for them? Oh, no, no. Yeah. Difference this time with the media weirdness, the social media reaction to that piece. It was like one afternoon, I sort of felt like, oh God, you know, this is going to get heavy. Just stressful. You know, sometimes attention is stressful just because something about your childhood, when you were getting attention, it was a nerve wracking thing. Even if you were a show off, sometimes attention is stressful just because it's, there's some association between some kind of trauma and attention where like, as long as you can stay invisible, you'll stay safe. So there are all these layers of why artists and writers get sent into this intense, stressful, fearful state of almost panic when they're getting attention. I have less and less of that now in some ways, because I'm used to some of it and I'm just much more comfortable when I with myself than I was 10 years ago when I started writing books, 30 years ago when I started writing for online audiences. So I had an afternoon of sort of, oh, that's it. Oh, I went to bed. Oh, not sure. And ever since then, I've sort of been in the space of there'll be more of that. It's fine. I knew that if I wrote about marriage, there'd be trouble. And if I told the truth about a lot of things, there'd be trouble. And that was sort of the point, right? Something that wasn't quite like the other things that I've encountered. And it kind of goes back to that thing where you're like, do you understand why you're here and what you're doing? You know, Mm -hmm. do you understand what you value and what you want to put out into the world? Can you stand behind what you made? The answer, luckily in this case is, yeah, I fucking stand (laughs) behind this book. I love this book. I'm proud of it. I feel good about it. I'm having trouble not saying that. It's a kind of a weird thing to say. I love my book. My book rules, you guys. I think why it, is it a weird thing to say though? To go back to our our do freedom. people say it? I'm one of those bad students, as I said, that like 
sometimes I find myself saying something and I think, do people say this? Do authors walk around saying my book I think is men really do. good? Men think- do. They say it's a good book. You should read it. They I don't know, even I, think they have to convince anyone. That's not true. It's just like, I, it's assumed. Yeah. It, they just assume that people know. Jonathan Franzine just sits back and nods. Yeah. He doesn't even have to <laughs> nod. He does, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he doesn't have to say, yeah, exactly. He can just look a little disgruntled. Like I hated that question and I'm probably not going to answer it. When people do something that you also do. Do it in a way that you wish you had thought of, that you wish you give yourself permission for really. I would never have written an advice column if I hadn't read Dear Sugar. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I was writing an advice column kind of on my blog at the time, and I'd given advice. She was so unashamed mm-hmm. in the way that she would dive right into so many things, so many topics, and, and also just a really loving and kind of sweet tone. And her softness is always right there. And I think part of it is just like giving yourself permission to copy the things you like. I don't know if you have ever had Austin Kleon on your show. Mm-hmm. You know if I know who he is. Yeah. Yeah. Steal like an artist. Once you start to understand that you have a right to create the thing that you would create, and it might be just as good as a, something you admire, right? You also just shift where you're like, okay, I'm okay with her now, but he is making me mad. You know, like I made my peace with her. She's okay. But this one, I actually read this um, interview with Hanya Yanagahara. I think it was the one in the New Yorker. Yeah. She, yeah I at read some that point, as well. Oh, you did? It's so mm-hmm. good. And mm-hmm. there's some point where she says, I write for myself. I don't write for other people. And then she says, same thing with tea. I make it for myself. I don't make it for anyone else but me. And I'm like, you impetuous brat. I love you. And I want to kill you. So much education, so, beyond me. so much style. I was yes. dying. I was like, well, you know, all the things that you're missing in one place. That's what it felt like to me. I was like, she's read everything and owns cool art. Jesus, like, I want to talk that way. I think that's good for women, for mm-hmm. someone to walk around saying, I do it for myself. Fuck you. I do whatever I want. I think that's amazing. I like arrogance right now. I just like the sound of it out in the world. Mm-hmm. Things have gotten boringly apologetic and it's time for art to have make a comeback. I'd like to ask this question at the end. What do you want to learn next? I want to learn how to make a book that feels like Ask Molly, essentially. I want to create an experience in a book. I really like to make something that is, I don't even want to say new because how could it be? Some kind of dance of history, the natural world, sensuality, madness, Mm. spirits. I want to make something, and maybe it's fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I want to learn how to do. I just moved to North Carolina and I thought I wanted to learn everything there is to know about plants because I thought I was a gardener um, when I got here. But now I have a real garden that's big and I'm in a climate where there are weeds that grow into every free inch of my garden. And now I realize that I'm just an amateur and actually I don't want to learn about all the plants. I can learn about some of them. Sometimes you want to learn things that make you a different person. And then you realize- And then you're like, I don't have the drive. Oh yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. actually not me at all. Oh my God, and the more... happened to me so many times. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. Because you're sort of, you have these, it's almost like um, aspirational. Like mm. my aspiration is to be completely different than I am. That sounds great. I can't wait. I can't wait to read that book. 
And I know everyone listening will love Foreverland and laugh and cry like I did. And I really appreciate this conversation. It was incredibly good for me. Oh, thank you. I really, it was good for me too. I really, I really enjoyed it. What do you want to do next? I don't know. I've been in a two year WTF. I feel like things are rearranging themselves in my head. I feel like Uh in my body, not even my head, in my body in a really Mm -hmm. good way, but I have no idea. I have no idea. And some days that's okay. And some days it's incredibly frightening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe you write about that. Maybe you write a book called The Question Mark, you know, like the time of uncertainty where you just write about grappling with uncertainty. I mean, that's my favorite thing to read about. It's just like, yeah, just when you create this open space of like, I'm not going to define who I am. I'm not going to define, I know what I value, but I don't know what I need now. I don't know Mm -hmm. what comes next. And you see what filters in because when you're really blank like that and you feel humbled by that kind of like, I don't know what's next circumstance. Women are great at that. Men are terrible at it in my experience. But when you do that, all this crazy magic comes at you. It's almost like constant inspiration because you've cleared so much out. Like you're not acting through your ego. You're just letting the world filter in. I don't know. That sounds a little bit. No, it doesn't. It's actually really interesting that I feel like that's part of what I'm going through right Mm -hmm. now is letting that a lot of the sense of who I think I'm supposed to be or who I thought I was go. Some days it's really fun and I feel so happy. And other days I'm like, wow, there's nobody home. I might need a little more than this. <laughs> <laughs> I might need an identity. Yeah, but I get maybe, that. Well, thank you so much for taking all this time and talking to me. It was Thank you. Awesome. Wow, right? Just what you would think from Heather. <laughs> Just what you would think. Amazing. I was on fire when this was over. I felt so much permission to be ravenous and so much permission to get out of the suburbs of my own thinking and creating. What were your takeaways? You gotta share this episode with friends who are like not letting themselves express or want what they want. This is a huge permission letter. Please, please share this episode wherever you listen to podcasts. I so appreciate it. But more than that, they're gonna appreciate it. The world needs this, this energy, this message, these thoughts, big time, especially right now. Next week, we have the fabulous creativity consultant and business builder, Sam Bennett. I discovered her by reading a book she wrote called Get It Done. And I'm like, this is full of ideas that I agree with and that I, in my own way, teach too. So I thought it'd be fantastic to have her on for just a real practical episode about how to get your creative work done so you can create out loud. So tune in next week for some real practical guidance. And in the meantime, have a great week and create out loud. Out.